invite you to join me again in Colossians chapter 2. As I sat down um, the other day to write an introduction, which is normally nothing very fancy, but the first thing that came to my mind was, okay, man, we need to review because it's been a long time since we've been in Colossians. I was like, wow, that was a long week at camp because <laughs> just been a normal week, just a regular week. But I was like, we should probably review because it's been a bit, but it certainly has not been. Nevertheless, I think at this point in the letter, perhaps this is just for my sake this morning, uh, but hopefully for yours as well, I'd like to just review where we've been in Colossians because today uh, he deepens the argument. He deepens the argument that he's been making all along. So as Paul opened the letter, remember to the Christians here in the Lycus Valley, Colossae being one of the three cities there, he opened with rejoicing and thanksgiving because Epaphras has brought word back to him that the gospel is being effective in this valley. It's working. And there is fruit that is being born and advancement in the knowledge of God. Um, and so he's very excited. He's rejoicing at the onset. And then because the gospel also places you in a category not only of rejoicing but also of people who need great prayer, Paul expresses this prayer primarily for one thing, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will which is the redemptive work of Christ. It's the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the mystery, Jesus. And as we are filled, as God answers this prayer in His kindness, as we're filled, that transforms not only our intellect, but our habit of life, the way in which we walk. And so it produces, as God answers this prayer, it produces people who walk worthy of Christ, who have a life that matches Jesus, and that brings God pleasure. There were four qualities of that walk in uh, verses 11 through, or 10 through 12 or so. Uh, he says, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all strength according to his power, and then uh, giving thanks with joy. So these are the qualities of the Christian. At the end of that, that fourth quality, remember, giving thanks with joy. Inside there, he says, lest you forget why you should walk through this life with great joy, he reiterates the work of the Father on their behalf. And that was that God the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. This glorious plan of redemption that the more we are filled with, the more our walk will look like Christ. At the end there in verse 14 of chapter 1, he identified the, the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so he sets his gaze on Christ, the Redeemer, the Reconciler, the, as we'll see this morning, really the champion of salvation. And then in verses 15 through 20, he reflected on Christ. He's the image of the invisible God. All of the fullness of God has been pleased to dwell in Jesus. And the two, in, in creation and in the new creation, he is uh, the originator, he is the agent, he is the one that sustains both of those realities, and he is the end goal, he is the object, not only of the created world, but also of the new man, the body of Christ, the church. At the end of that song, he mentioned the reconciliation of all things. 
And then you'll remember in verses 21 through 23, he applies that story of reconciliation to the Christians in Colossae. Right? That they particularly have been transferred from enemy now to friend. And what accomplished that was the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He made peace through the blood of his cross. That story of reconciliation was preached to them by Epaphras. And now Paul, then in verse 23, at the end of it, he says, and I too have been made a minister of this gospel. So then he talked for a bit about his role, his responsibility, almost in administering uh, these blessings of Christ. And there was the mystery that's revealed. This is the content of his preaching. Uh, and his responsibility is, is to proclaim that and, and to pray faithfully for the people. It's chapter 2, verse 1. And then their response ought to be, kind of verses 4 through 10, that because they have heard the clarity of Jesus in all of his treasure, in all of his abundance, in all of his fullness, our proper response is to be aware of any voice that says anything contrary and to continue walking according to the tradition of Christ that we have received. We'll read verses 9 and 10 because this is the hinge between that and where we're going this morning. It says, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. So in that verse, fullness and completeness, we observed last week, was one of the things that rises to the surface. And this is something that has been a theme in the entirety of the book and will continue to be. That the threat, the cultural and theological threat coming against the church is the lie that says there's something about Christ that is either too slow in your growth or insufficient in your growth. And so we'll gather other voices unto ourselves to support Christ. So that idea of fullness has been present. And then in verse 10 he says, and you are full. You're complete in Christ. So the question this morning that the text answers is, how do I have fullness in relationship to Jesus? How, how has that taken place? You've stated it, you know, you've stated it and you've explained him in his fullness and his splendor, but how is it that I join him? He's mentioned reconciliation and the blood of the cross, and this morning he demonstrates the fullness that we share with Christ by two signs. These are very well-known signs in the Jewish and Christian faith. That is circumcision and baptism. So otherwise, they sort of come out of left field and seem a little bit odd that he, that he runs right here. But this is how we have fullness in relationship to Christ. So the spiritual intention behind the signs of relationship to God has been accomplished in Jesus. You have been brought to a state of spiritual fullness by spiritual circumcision and baptism that have been administered on the basis of forgiveness. So those are kind of the three things that we have before us. Circumcision, baptism, 
and forgiveness this morning. So let's consider the first one. This is verse 11. In him you were also circumcised. So let's spend a moment to review. It was not long ago, and I think this is very helpful for us. It was not long ago that we saw in Genesis 17 the sign of the circumcision uh, or the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So God commanded Abraham back in Genesis 17 to cut the foreskin from every male in the house, not only Abraham's own children, which weren't at that point, but his servants as well. So the house of Abraham was circumcised. And this was a visible, physical demonstration of the absolute certainty of God's promise to exclusive recipients, the house of Abraham. And in that chapter, in verse 13, he said, My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So it's a visible demonstration of the promises of blessing and land and seed that God had given to Abraham. So significant was this sign that the people became known, uh, well, at least by one reference point, as the circumcised. This is how Paul often refers to them. And I would recommend even if, uh, I, I think it would be helpful, I did this past week, and this is some of the content of that, but listening back to that sermon in Genesis 17 was really helpful in just reminding us of laying the foundation. So in that sermon, Pastor Matt presented three r- meanings of circumcision. Let's just remember those. First, circumcision proves that God is sovereign over seed, that it is by Him and through Him that progeny is born. The power to procreate is life, and life belongs to God. So it was a mark that was a reminder that says life only comes truly from God. Secondly, God is forming a covenant community. Uh, This is not the evidence, the physical circumcision is not the evidence that they believe necessarily, but that God is creating in them a people that are going to display His law and His promise to the world, a community also through whom the promised seed would come. Thirdly, and significantly for us this morning, circumcision is a visible symbol that God is worthy of full devotion. So in contrast to some of the cultural practices of the day, that some cultures practiced a partial circumcision, Abraham is called by God to practice a full circumcision, demonstrating that they are fully devoted to God. So a quick biblical theology then, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, is going to be helpful for us as we think through this. Deuteronomy chapter 10 gives us the first of two times in the book of Deuteronomy that circumcision is mentioned. You can turn there with me if you'd like. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. And notice particularly who is called upon to do this circumcision. Um, And and note uh, one of the unique movements here from circumcision of the flesh to circumcision of something else. Chapter 10, uh, verses 12 through 16. It says, And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. 
The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. So, in Deuteronomy, what is beginning to be developed in our biblical theology of circumcision is that the physical sign was intended to represent something that was happening on the inside. This removal of the flesh was supposed to indicate something that had happened inside. There was some sort of removal of the flesh of my heart. And in chapter 10, God calls upon the people of Israel to do that to themselves, circumcise your hearts, obey me, follow me. Now that is all fine and well, but we know that there is a difficulty, a great difficulty that humans have in obedience, in doing that which physical signs were intended to accomplish, not, to, not the physical sign accomplished, but to, to represent. Humans are not good at making themselves obedient, at circumcising their hearts, at cutting off sin, at being fully devoted to God. Yet this is the command of God to Moses. And so in chapter 30, this is the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, we have a very beautiful promise of God. He says in verse 5, then... The Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So there's an important transition even within that book of the responsibility who is going to circumcise the hearts? Initially, it's commanded to the people, and then God makes the promise that he will accomplish it. This is developed, we won't read this this morning, but write down Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. Look at that this week. Be encouraged even by the continued development of this promise. And then finally, we're going to go over to Romans chapter 2 and see then God's accomplishment of this promise. Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so there's this promise from God that's developed that he is going to circumcise their hearts. He promises to step into their continued failure after failure to deliver them from uncleanness. The external expression gives way to the internal reality when God circumcises the heart. It is in Christ that God fulfills the true and the original intent of the sign to establish His sovereignty, overseed in the creation and new creation, 
um, to form a covenant community that truly reflects His righteousness and promise, and to visibly demonstrate that God is worthy of full devotion. And it is that spiritual circumcision described in Romans 2 and and in Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel 36, to which Paul refers here in Colossians chapter 2. And there are three phrases that he describes this circumcision with. He says, with the circumcision, here's the important point that clues us in, made without hands, right? Not a physical circumcision, a spiritual procedure, an immaterial procedure that no other God could accomplish. I think there's a little bit of a a reference, not only to this something that is physical, but there's this reference from Paul, a slam against any other deity, any other thing that might be made with hands. No, nothing that's made with hands can accomplish this. This isn't a physical reality, something only God can do. How does he do this? Well, he circumcises us spiritually by putting off or cutting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Namely, this is, we could call this, the circumcision of Christ or Christian circumcision. So this spiritual procedure is one that's described uh, pretty fully as well in Romans chapter 6. And it's going to be developed later in the book of in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. But circumcision here becomes a metaphor, of course not for the removal of a physical portion of the flesh, but of our propensity towards sin. That is the flesh he's talking about here in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And Romans, described, Romans 6 describes this as well. It says, The old man, our old nature, was crucified with Christ in order that the body of of flesh, the body of sin, would be brought to nothing, would be abolished. Here would be cut off, would be removed. So in Christ, our reborn nature is no longer subject to the old authorities within or without. I think without would be the powers that are present in Colossians. And within would be this call, this yearning, our allegiance to the kingdom of darkness uh, and the flesh being the voice that cries to us to go back to that time and time again. So the implication in the life of a Christian is not that there would no longer be any temptations, there would no longer be any deceptive desires, that there would no longer be any yearning for that which is not of Christ. But this text teaches us that in Him... The body of sin, namely our habit of disobedience, is removed. We are freed from our allegiance to sin. We are freed from the reality that sin was natural. Now it is unnatural. Now that may or may not feel... (laughs) real. May we not feel as though the reality in Christ, that my propensity to sin is now unnatural. And this is an interesting thing that comes up even in the conversations, the testimonies of the gospel in our own lives. You may hear some testimonies of conversion, and they say, when Christ transformed my life, all of those old desires were gone, and it was incredible. And, you know, perhaps it was an addiction, or perhaps it was this or that, and it was just removed from me. 
And that may be your experience that perhaps you're sitting in there and you're like, not me. <laughs> I didn't feel that complete removal of a desire or an addiction or something like this. In fact, this is a daily battle. And so it's important for us not to pretend as though the experience of one is the experience of all and the pace, the growth, and even the target areas of God moving us toward the image of Christ, moving us toward the, the practice of Christ in accordance with our nature. That varies according to God's sovereignty. And the encouraging part of this is that it is His work to grow us. And so we can trust in His pace whether that means we fight to the death, it seems, against the flesh on a daily basis in one or many areas, or we live with this feel of freedom in our lives. And perhaps it kind of goes back and forth depending on the area and the time and the season. That's okay. But according to your nature, you no longer have an allegiance to sin. That has been freed from your nature. There is a temptation because of, at times, the slow pace of our growth. And I think this is one of the things Colossians is addressing. That can be one of the reasons that we want to look other places. Because in this area in my life, it seems like I'm not growing fast enough. It seems like when I come and, and seek help, it says, turn, somebody says, turn to Christ, look to Christ, rest in Christ, look at Colossians. You're, you are circumcised. You no longer have this allegiance to the flesh. And you say, okay. And then I battle again. You say, I go get help. Well, look to Christ. Remember that you are dead in him and you are, you'll be raised with him. You say, okay, but it just doesn't seem like it's working. And so there's, there can be this tendency over time when you don't have the felt effects of growth that we want to look elsewhere. And the encouragement Colossians, in, in Colossians is don't do that. Let your physical death and the resurrection that is promised be the evidence of whether God grew you enough or not. Until then, continue trusting in his process, okay? There's a heavy emphasis here um, on the already. In fact, this is one of the, the reasons that silly critics uh, accuse sometimes that, that Paul didn't write Colossians. Because one of the things that's unique in Colossians is the, the very heavy already emphasis on his eschatology. So we observe this in the first chapter. Remember that uh, this, there's this hope which is already laid up for you in heaven. It's like this hope that's already there. It's alive. It, it exists and you possess it. And here he says the, the flesh has already been put off. It's already been cut off. And in a moment he's about to say you were, you're already buried and you're already resurrected. And this heavy, like, already emphasis, it's done, it's done, it's done, is one of his big arguments against the other voices. Because they say, but it's not really yet, so maybe let's work towards that. Do some supplementing. And he says, no, 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 it is absolutely finished. You have raised. Your hope is established. You are circumcised. The flesh is done away with. So this spiritual reality, the already, is heavy in the book of Colossians. So this first, idea, this first sign, the physical sign that now has its spiritual emphasis, the spiritual reality accomplished by Christ is circumcision. Accomplished by Christ at the new birth, this is Christian circumcision. The second example, the second sign uh, is that of baptism. 
and three times in verses 12 and 13, um, he prefixes the verb with the prefix soon, which is with. And that is the three that are underlined. So, buried with him, raised with him, made alive with him. And this is a, perhaps an advance of this uh, doctrine in Colossians. He's already identified in him, in him, in him, with him. You know, he's the agent and he's the object and all of these things. He's, everything is already revolving around Christ. But here he describes, um, as Paul does in Romans chapter 5, this intimate connection with Christ And in Romans chapter 5, he describes it as a previous connection that we had with our first father, Adam. That with him, when he sinned, when he disobeyed, I sinned, I disobeyed. It's this deep association with him that has very heavy consequences. And here we have displayed our association with the second Adam. There are now members of the human race that have been reborn into a new identification, out of old Adam into new Adam Christ. One who, rather than sinning, obeyed. One who, rather than living in death, died and he rose from the grave. Those activities of Christ are what is present here, burial, resurrection, these two particularly. And he's saying that when he did that, just like when Adam sinned, I sinned, when Christ died, I died. And when Christ rose from the grave, I rose from the grave. That's why he can say it's done. Because Jesus, as we saw in the song, is the firstborn from the grave. So no longer are we ruled by the authorities of the old life that we once lived in Adam. Now we are ruled by Christ, the righteous King of grace and life. And so the second symbol, once again, uh, similar, well, a lot of the debate that takes place over this text is, is whether this is a baptism of the Spirit or whether this is water baptism being demonstrated in the text. And based on his argument in verse 11, that this is a circumcision made without hands, I think foundationally, we can say we're looking at a baptism without hands. Where does that take place? First Corinthians 12 describes this for us, and it describes that in an immaterial way, the Spirit of God, upon our conversion, baptized us into the body of Christ, meaning that we have now been completely associated with Him. Now, is the physical sign far from that? Is it distant from that? Or is it very intimately connected? I think it's very intimately connected. We have a physical demonstration that we even have acted out in the last month. We have this physical demonstration of the spiritual reality. So, when was it that we were baptized or buried with Him and raised with Him? Upon spiritual baptism. When did it take place? When we were saved, when we were converted, regenerated. But when is that displayed to the covenant community? Upon our water baptism. And we speak of this frequently, particularly recently, because of baptisms that we've been able to have in the last year. 
But this is the primary picture, that as we physically go into the water, we are demonstrating that in the Spirit of God, He has associated us with Christ in His death. And then, praise God, we don't keep the person under the water, right? There aren't air bubbles and death. No, we bring them right back up because with Christ, we are alive. With Christ, we have resurrection. It is those two concepts, death and life, that are located here. You can see them all throughout verses 12 and 13. How is it then, I've stated it already, but how is it then that this association with Christ and circumcision, the removal of our flesh, and in baptism, this death and resurrection, how did that association with Him begin? And here, He identifies faith. He says, through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So faith is highlighted here and repeatedly through the New Testament as the essential human response to God's converting grace. That as God regenerates, He gives faith. He gives belief, hope, confidence, trust. And it's interesting that the object of the faith in this verse is uh, the working of God. That's a little bit unique. Normally, he would say faith in Christ. And here he says faith in the power of God. I think that's beautiful here because truly, if we don't believe that God has the authority or that in history he did not have the strength to raise Christ, then why would we think that he could raise us? Why would we place our hope and our confidence there? We would not. So it is the belief that he can do what he claimed to do that gives us confidence to say, well, if he did it with Christ, then certainly he could do it with me. We need no other spiritual power or authority toward the fullness of life, toward the full experience of humanity that God is moving us toward. So in verse 13, he kind of summarizes both of these ideas. He brings together death and life and uncircumcision and baptism. And he says, the, one of the reasons that God had to do this, that he associated you with life through, uh, through baptism, is that you were dead already. So you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together. So this death was the reality of our own uh, trespass, meaning sin, and our own spiritual uncircumcision, meaning allegiance to the flesh, by our allegiance to the flesh in Adam, that we were with him, and by our own sin, our own offenses, we have incurred the penalty of death. So this uncircumcised flesh that he's talking about here is the condition that needed removed in Christ's own circumcision of us. If the allegiance and the impulse to sin is not taken away, then the sinner remains condemned. After all, the wages of sin is death. So on what basis is it then that God is able to associate us with the death and the resurrection of Christ. We've mentioned faith, but here in the following two verses, 
he develops the idea and the, and the doctrine of forgiveness. The basis of God's association with us and Christ is forgiveness. Meaning if you don't have forgiveness, you don't have the association. Previously, he's spoken in terms of uh, redemption. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he's spoken in terms of reconciliation through the body and blood. And now we have forgiveness through the cross of Christ. This, I think, is probably best told. I'm going to read it one time. And then I think it's best described uh, really just in, in retelling the story rather than in walking through line by line. So we'll read this and then just think about how Paul addresses this whole topic in Colossians. He says, So having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, which was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, a few notes in the story. So the handwriting of requirements. What is that that is against us? The handwriting of requirements. It's two words. This is hotly debated. It's often associated with the Old Testament law, kind of as the handwriting of requirements, uh, because that is where God described his requirements. Um, but in this case, I think while our offenses are certainly founded on the law, the law exposes our sin. But this document that this describes is not the law in and of itself, because surely God doesn't take the law and take it out of the way and nail it to the cross, and uh, th that's not what he's doing with the law. But our offenses, the list of things that we have done, that have broken the law, which is quite a list as we reflect back upon our lives. It is this record of debt. It is a bill of indictment, a great debt of sin that we owe. And these sins, this list, is it's conclusive evidence that you have failed and I have failed. You didn't circumcise your heart. You couldn't. And so it functions to accuse you. That's its position. And he states that explicitly two different times. It's against you. It's contrary to you. It's the voice of the accuser, and it's a correct voice. The accuser has something to accuse you of. Your own um, heart, your own even past allegiance to the flesh, it rightly condemns you. We rightly felt guilt. And so... Now to bring this, this whole story together in Colossians, think back in chapter 1 of these two kingdoms that Paul sets before us in the story. And there's the kingdom of darkness to which every single person was once, once allegiant, and there is the kingdom of light. And according to both our nature and our own natural anti-God activity that our nature predisposed us toward, we were allegiant to the powers of evil. We lived in this kingdom of darkness. And as we walked 
habitually in this darkness. We accumulated unto ourselves a great and terrible list that spoke the truth about our offenses and our enmity with God. Time after time after time we failed to obey. Time after time we rebelled. And the powers of the kingdom very present in Colossians, right? The, the authorities of that kingdom of darkness, they held this list over us. They, and rightfully so, remember, they rightfully accused us. And they said, you're an enemy of God. God has great wrath for you. Look at you and your disobedience and your guilt and all of these stains of sin that you possess. Why would he want anything to do with you? You are mine. Continue with me. And not that we would have wanted anything different while we walked in that life, right? This was natural to us. We swore our own allegiance it just reminded us, though, of, of, of God's anger, like this club threateningly held over our heads, saying, you can never leave. You can never have peace with God. This list is too long. And then, the fullness of God sees fit to be born of a Virgin Mary in the person Jesus the king of the kingdom of light himself walks down to earth in humility. And there's this imagery of, of essentially him, as he moves toward the cross, there is this raid on the kingdom of darkness whereby he gathers these documents, the document of my own sin and your own sin. And he takes them with him as he walks in his great purity and obedience and sinlessness and the circumcision of his heart, as he walks to the cross. And inasmuch as he is nailed to the cross, so then all of these legal documents that state the truth about your sin, he nails them to the cross with him. And so, as God looks down upon Christ, and he's pouring out his wrath on Christ, it is all of these documents against which God is furious. It is all of the sins presently nailed to the cross with Christ that he sees and he pours out his anger against. And so Christ is there condemned he is there becoming sin. He is there becoming a curse for us. And as his blood flows and the anger of God is poured out on him, if you were to, and this, this is a picture, it's not what actually happened, but it, this picture is that as his blood flows, it's like as it runs down these pieces of paper, after it flows down the piece of paper, the paper no longer has any offenses written on it. He wipes it clean. A clean slate, not in the sense that you get to restart, but a clean slate in that everything ever done against God, past, present, and future, is erased. It is handled. The cross in this story is a bit confusing because the kingdom of darkness may be claiming victory on that day. 
The kingdom of darkness looks like they've just succeeded in crushing the king of the kingdom of light. And darkness falls on the earth that day, and Jesus is put in the grave. And so there is this bit of tension in the cross because the king has lost his life. This, perhaps, gives the powers of darkness great glee and excitement and the sense of victory. But the next time they go to accuse those who are in Christ... They come perhaps to this theoretical courtroom. They come with this club over, uh, raised over your head and they say, you are guilty, you are condemned, look at this list. And anyone who is in Christ could point to that and say, what list? I see nothing. My offenses were handled. They were wiped away. And so this kingdom, all of these powers, all of these strengths of darkness, they're rendered powerless. They have no club to hold over you. They have no list of accusations against you. And so anything from that point forward is all manipulation and deceit. Anything from that point forward that tells you you are guilty, look what you have done, God is angry with you, that is all lies. He has no more anger. He has no fist raised against you. The list is empty. The accusers have nothing to say and they're put to shame. Verse 15 describes this in stunning fashion. So you have the death. And it was on the cross that this was handled, right? It was on the cross that these things were erased. But it's not until the resurrection, it's not until Jesus takes breath again and rises from the dead that all of these powers of darkness are truly exposed. They're truly put to shame. He triumphs over them in it, in his resurrection, I believe. It's, it's all of it together, but finally, publicly, in his resurrection. And so the king of light takes back his own life, and it's as though he has all of these blank pieces of paper, this purity that describes the saints, blood washed, and he takes behind him, and this is in true Roman form, he takes behind him the captives, all of these powers of darkness, all of these little K kings, and all of these uh, people who have just held great strength in the world, and he takes them behind him and makes them march behind him as though they had no clothes, as that they're completely ashamed. They have no right accusation any longer. Armaments destroyed, glory brought to shame, and now he leads in this triumphal procession and all of these are behind him. This is what the Romans did, and this is the allusion to it, that after a great battle, you bring particularly the powers, you bring the kings of the nation you've conquered, and perhaps as generals and all these mighty ones, and you walk through the city. You walk toward your own throne. You say, who's the king now? Who's powerful now? And oftentimes, it led them, they led them in the shameful procession then to their death. They executed them. 
And this is the progression of the powers in Colossians. We have them stated. We have them even coming as a threat against the people. That Epaphras, this human pastor, he sees these powers coming against God's family. And he runs to the apostle for strength and help and counsel. And this letter is his counsel back. And in it, he says, yes, there are great dangers. I will pray for you that you would be strengthened in Christ. But keep this in mind, that all of these powers that are coming against you, all of these authorities that scream and accuse and say guilty and promise you other things outside of Christ in any sort of imaginable and deceptive ways possible, all of them He made, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. They have no authority but authority that He has sovereignly chosen to give them. That's how strong and powerful of a God we serve. He could give His enemies some strength, and He can use their own strength and their own strivings and their own evil for His glory and for His good. But He will not ultimately lend them strength. And that's the description here. That there is an already concept to the complete obliteration and powerlessness of Satan and his host. You are already raised. You are already circumcised. He already destroyed any and every power that comes against you. And so we take this with us, this beautiful account this beautiful story of the gospel and the power of the cross and, and how our own sin hung with him there. And we glory in forgiveness. That there is nothing left to accuse. The fullness of my sin and anyone's sin who is with Christ is erased by the blood of Jesus. That means that today we live in freedom. Today we live in the freedom of forgiveness. And the signs are helpful to us because they give us visible demonstrations of this freedom. That even circumcision, that I have been in my heart circumcised. This is a good reminder to me because when I am compelled in my heart towards sin, when you have that desire rise up again and again and again, you can say with authority, God removed that from me. A sign is very helpful. The picture is very helpful. The metaphor is very helpful. And so we meditate on them. When it feels impossible to walk in obedience, when we feel as though the voice of deception has complete authority, I cannot help but sin, no. We have been circumcised by Christ. And then baptism is also this helpful, beautiful sign, one that we practice, that death is done and life is one. And we have been raised in Christ spiritually and even from the waters physically to walk in newness of life.